Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the last week in February 2020. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief George Edelman. Hello. And writer Michelle De La Tour. Hi everyone. And we're going to be talking about the insane technology behind The Mandalorian. We're going to be talking about Patreon and how filmmakers can use it. We've got some tech news out of Sigma. And we're going to wrap it all up with an Ask No Film School question that pivots back to an, a really amazing conversation that happened in the comments this week. All of that this week on the No Film School podcast. While it's easy to get distracted obsessing about the newest cameras and sensors, most filmmakers know that the real quality of your images start with the quality of your lenses. You want a lens that reproduces images clearly while still flattering faces and skin tones. You want a lens that's compact enough to handhold all day or fly in a drone. And you want a lens that is affordable so you can afford to add it to your kit and have it with you on all your jobs. If you're looking for a lens that combines all of those qualities, you should look no further than the Zine CF line. Lightweight, with most of the lenses weighing in less than two pounds. Physically compact bodies. Beautifully sharp and slightly warm images. All that at a price point that is hard to believe. The Zine CF lenses are available worldwide now. Check out zineglobal.com for more. That's zine, X-E-E-N, global.com. Okay, so the first story this week, we had a big article that was on our uh, the website, nofilmschool.com, which was a large breakdown of the technology behind the shooting of The Mandalorian. If you haven't seen the article or any of the other coverage about it, The Mandalorian was shot in sort of an interesting new way. Instead of using, uh, instead of shooting on location, which obviously you've got to put everybody in a hotel and you're always worried about the sun and it's hot and whatever. And instead of shooting against green screen, where you're doing all of the building a fake set in post, they built a 360-degree LED screen set that they live real-time rendered. And the important thing about real-time rendering is it's not just a set that, like, they could play a pre-built scene on where, like, you build a scene and then you play it and you can shoot because that would only work if your background set was always the same distance. If the background set was always the exact same distance as your screen, you're fine. But as soon as you, like, move the camera the mountain that's supposed to be far away needs to move appropriately at dipping further away. So in order for this to work for the Mandalorian, they had a real, they use the unreal video game engine and they work with a team from Epic games and they built a system so that as you moved the camera around in the set, they would re-render the background to match the right perspective. So if you're pushing in on a character, the mountains in the far distance don't change very much, but things closer change more. And the scene is being live re-rendered as they work. I mean, there's an amazing quote in the video where the cinematographer talks about the fact that he's like, you can shoot Dawn for 10 hours, which like if anybody's ever tried to shoot a Dawn scene, you have, you have 15 minutes where it looks that amazing Dawn. That's generous. At a certain high end of the market, it's definitely the future of that world of filmmaking. Virtual production is sort of what it's being called. The problem with green screen and the problem with post VFX is it changes a lot of the habits that create like beautiful spontaneity. Like you're locked into a certain thing because you're only going to have green for this part of the scene or you only have this set pre-built or whatever. And the beauty of this is it brings a lot of the spontaneity back where... You can just pan over and you're not going to shoot off the set because the whole 360 is being digitally rendered. And, you know, the lighting effects of the background interact with the characters. If you have a shiny spaceship, it's going to reflect the sky that's being rendered around you. You have all those things working together. I, I imagine in 15 years for high-end motion pictures, this will just be the norm and we won't see any uh, 
green screen at the top end. Because why would you if you could do this? There's an amazing story about it that was on ICG by a writer, Kevin H. Martin. That was like one of the first really big dives into stagecraft that I saw that I think really did a great job covering it. And we uh, reblogged it essentially. And that post is up on No Film School. And then we saw that um, ILM and their PR people let us know about this video. That's what this post, watch how the Mandalorian literally moved mountains with stagecraft came to be is because we just wanted to give people access to that great video that also illustrates how it works. And I think you did an excellent job, Charles, just explaining kind of what how what it is and how it affects things. Because sometimes you look at these images, honestly, you look at some of the images from it and you can't really tell what's going on there. <laughs> like you can't like it's like, okay, so they're not there. What part of it is the screen? What part of it is what now? But I think for the the, the thing that's crazy about it to me is that it makes total sense given what's happened with gaming, that this is possible. Um, games look great, and you can walk around in these virtual worlds within a game on a great-looking screen, and everything's in perspective constantly, and you never question it for a moment. Like, it's just like you buy it completely. So it makes total sense. And we did an interview with... Um, I did an interview with Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer who worked on uh, Lion King, which was also John Favreau, and Disney and talked about how similarly creating like a di a camera in a virtual reality basically and that interview is also up on no film school and I think you can sort of see how this this whole thing is progressing as we can the, the technology is so good that you don't have to go places to or fake here's another thing like let's think let's just talk about this in context of the history of Star Wars the first Star Wars movies that really heavily utilized the green screen thing, like The Phantom Menace in 1999 was actually shot on film, which is crazy. Attack of the Clones, which was, I think, 2002, was like one of the first like, hey, we're going all digital, which is funny to think back to now. But I feel like you could definitely tell back then that it was digital and not film. Um, they were pioneering some of this. But one of the reasons I think those movies felt so odd, pacing wise and just stilted, was because they were trying to integrate all these things that they didn't know what they would be yet. And the actors didn't know what they would be. And the director didn't, like, the pieces weren't all together. It was like uh, they were flying blind to some extent. So now we're in a Star Wars, and I think when you watch The Mandalorian, you can feel the difference. It feels organic. It flows naturally. Do you guys know what I'm talking about there? It's like you don't question the reality of it, whereas in those Star Wars prequels, it was constantly like, what is, am I even looking at? You know what I mean? How much of that do you think was storytelling and how much of that is the uh, computer versus real? I think that's a great question. And I have a thought. And and that's kind of why I'm, I'm thinking about it this way to begin with. But I'm curious what you guys think as well. I think that the Mandalorian pared down the storytelling to be as simple as possible in a goal to execute this all cleanly. Because one criticism you might have of The Mandalorian was that it was pretty basic. That not, was my not, not meaning that in sort interview. of the pejorative, like, yeah, but it was like, it was just, they kept it real simple. And I think that that's because they wanted to make sure that they hit their marks. I'm curious if this had first been ruled out with something that wasn't Star Wars, what we would think. 
Because I think we're primed in the Star Wars world to think like, oh, it's a new land. Uh, it might look cool. And so we're already expecting it to look interesting and unique. And so I'm curious if, if someone said, hey, I really want to shoot insert new project here, what that would look like with this technology built into something else. So I'm going to be a little bit theater nerd here. I think there's a magic when a group of people come together and play together. And I think space is part of that magic. There's a completely different experience where you're rehearsing like a jail scene in an empty soundstage than when you're rehearsing a jail scene in a jail cell. And what was interesting to me about that uh, behind the scenes video in ICG is someone on the crew talking about the fact that he's like, you walk into this space and even though you know it's digital, because it fills all the way to your peripheral vision, you, you, you're sort of there. And I imagine it's like, I imagine it's very strange for your first couple of days to get used to the idea that you're like, you know, if you're a smoker, you can go outside and smoke your cigarette in Marina del Rey sunshine because this is all down by the airport. And then you walk inside and you're in Tatooine and it's a full 360, you know, I mean, we all have those experiences sometimes on just a normal film set that's not even 20 feet high and 75 feet across and rendered in real time. And I I personally think there's a strange magic to that experience. Did you guys see um, there was a recent um, movie? A movie came out, I think, last weekend with Harrison Ford, a Call of the Wild adaptation. And there were all these clips that went viral of him interacting with the man who's a Cirque du Soleil performer who was playing the dog. They didn't do a real dog. They did a man in the mocap suit. And it's funny because you're what Harrison Ford, you know the old grouch that he is like talking about playing with this man and pretending he was a dog. And I think that what I kept thinking about was just like, it doesn't that inherently change what, what we're getting? Like, I don't see how it can't. Right. And I think that that, like they made a baby Yoda puppet or, or a creature. It was there physically. I think that changes the way the whole thing goes. For people who are filmmakers, and you guys can, I want to know what you guys think of this. So I'm asking, do you think it'll affect, or when do you think things like this can affect people at levels off the very, very upper tier in terms of budget? It sounds like the barrier to entry is potentially the technology and the speed required to render in real time, if that's if I have that right. So depending on when that is more accessible to everyone else, question mark, or if the rates to rent a space that has that built in, like the one. See, that's what I was is, thinking. Yeah. Like, what if someone, yeah, like how about making one of these spaces available? I mean, just imagine what people can do. Well, so the, the price tag I've heard was $100 million. Oh, man. What? <laughs> I mean, I've just heard that anecdotally. <laughs> The, the reason behind that – first off, there's all that R&D that's now been done, right? And now there's probably not like a Mandalorian stage forum you can go online and pick their brain yet about like, oh, when I'm trying to build my own Mando stage, what do I do with this? You know, <laughs> There's nobody who's going to be like, oh, you need the red cable. Like, so – Oh, man, be we need a post how to build your own stagecraft stage. Yeah. We'll get there eventually on no Are we going to go with we'll, stagecraft we'll or Mando? I want to call it a Mando stage. Well, what it, I okay, whatever it's yeah, yeah whatever we're gonna call it. How to build your we own? We will one day, in like twenty years, maybe have the DIY. No, I honestly think it'll be insanely fast. I honestly think because well, computers <laughs> like processing feed, processing speed just speeds up so quickly that I think honestly you'll see, 
you'll see in f- six years, you'll see a stage you'll be able to get on for five grand a day is my guess, which is like within the range of like, you know, indie film budgets, not in like New York or LA, but if you're willing to drive like halfway to San Diego or, you know, a little bit outside of town where real estate is cheaper, like out on Long Island or like in Atlanta or something, I think there will be a five to 10 grand a day stage solution for this. The bigger thing, of course, is you're going to have to pre-build your environment Yes, and you're going to have to work with an artist. But honestly, you know, there there used to be this stage in LA called the Entertainium that uh, it had like nine pre-built sets in it. And if you like everybody who worked on indie features 15 years ago, you would either end up there or Sable Ranch on every indie feature because there'd be like a scene in a bathroom and the producers would run out of money and they'd be like, fuck it, there's a bathroom built at the Entertainium. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the Entertainium's gone and I think Sable Ranch is still a thing. Um, I shot, I worked so much at Sable Ranch back in the day, but I bet, I bet there'll be like 15 pre-built. You'll be able to go to the, the future, the Mandotanium. Man, I'm really going for it. But like the Mandotanium will have like 12 pre-built sets and you can be like, oh, okay, I want to do like a desert scene in the Mandotanium and you'll just be able to go. And that'll, I think that is likely. And I wonder when you'll have this whole workflow or job for people who build those worlds and they come with you and they design them with you from the beginning with your project. Yeah. And then they, you bring that, software or whatever we call it to the mandotanium and you put it in there right so you don't have to use one of their pre-built that everybody else has used like a film ranch but you can actually use your own like we built our world we built paris from this year or whatever i mean just imagine how much this can change like a period piece like it makes so much stuff more available and then imagine when people are doing things with it like they're treating it so they don't want it to maybe be crystal clear or whatever. They want it to have a certain, I don't Texture, know. Texture, personality, aesthetic. Whatever. Or you want it to look like the 70s yeah. in film in the backgrounds. All sorts of stuff. Although, you know, what's interesting. So people are always asking, they're like, what is the thing? What do you think the next big opportunity is? Because like, you know, I, you know, color was an amazing opportunity in 2004 to 2010 because it just opened up in this amazing way. Color is still a great world if you want to be a colorist. If you're like, I want to I want to learn like a like a Wild West thing. I feel like this is a good like if you're an 18 to 20 year old aspiring filmmaker who's just wants like a way into the industry, like get your hands on Unreal, which I think you can install Unreal at home for free as long as you're not making money on it and get good at Unreal and be the DIY Mandotanium guy and write the post-it no film school or gal be the Also, also get great at Deep fakes, because I think that's also going to be a thing. But I would also say, yeah. uh, I would also say, Michelle, I want to do a real quick plug. Michelle did a post with a colorist that we have up on No Film School, all about how to get into being a colorist and what that path is. So as long as we're talking about colorists, like if if you're out there and you do want to get into it, it is still a great opportunity. Oh yeah, and we have it's an amazing an interview yeah. she did with. Yeah, but it's not the Wild West it was in 2005 to 2010. Like there were like eight color grading companies that are still in business started in those years in LA. It is a more full market. There's still a tremendous opportunity. I do kind of feel like we lose a little bit of the DIY green screen. Like I worried that you know when you're a kid and you're like I really want to make a film and you can like put up a green sheet and it does work. Like I still think that we can do that, and I think. At some point, these will hopefully cross so that the the young DIY kind of first film with your now, I guess it's a cell phone um, with a green screen will cross with virtual environments to make those really interesting. 
Like, I do feel like I want there to be a world in which it's not restricted to the man. What do you call it? Mando. Man- Mandotanium. Mandotanium. <laughs> but you can still kind of do something really interesting with the tools, with the smallest tools that are available. Yes. I just like being reminded that, like, for me, green screen was already, like, when it came along, it was like I was already like, oh, this is like a cool thing you can do at home by yourself. That's so like because before that, it was like the first things I made were like, I don't even know, like I don't not a VHS camera, but they were <laughs> but they weren't green screens. It wasn't available at home. But yeah, it happens fast. That's a good point. It happens very fast. Well, I wonder how much it would take. And look, if anybody out there is in the consumer packaged good space, CPG space and wants to work with me on this. Like a, a Mandotanium kit for kids, like <laughs> yes. should be available. Like my daughter is two. By the time she's eight, I would love it if there was like a thing I could pop up on the wall and plug it into my computer and have a Mandotanium kit for kids so she can make her little films and put them wherever in the world she wants. I think that is huge. And yeah, I mean, I like would love to see that too. Are you raising a young filmmaker already? Is that your plan? I mean, you know, I hope not. I'm trying to steer her towards being a lawyer for an oil company or uh Yeah, I was going to say I think we all hope not, right? Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to I'm going to support Don't want to get too dark here. I'm going to support her wildly in whatever her dreams may be. So um, speaking of good. support, is yes, that a way the, oh my God. into Patreon? That is the perfect transition. Patreon. The the method for online support. It's like your parents, but it's fans. <laughs> um, so we have a great post up right now, which is about how filmmakers can use Patreon, which might be pronounced Patreon. I hear some people say that, but since it's a patron that it's riffing on, I'm assuming it's Patreon. Um, Patreon gives me the heebie-jeebies, but some people do say that. Um, you probably know Patreon from a podcast you listen to. That's most of the people who seem to use Patreon are in the podcast space. But there are filmmakers and a whole host of other people on Patreon. It is a su- subscription-based support. So as opposed to Kickstarter where you're like, I have this one film and I need money for this one film. Patreon is, I want to make stuff. I want to make this stuff on the regular. Can you subscribe to supporting my ability to make stuff on the regular? I subscribe to Last Podcast on the Left on Patreon. If you don't listen to Last Podcast on the Left, it's a really great true crime podcast. It's very enjoyable. And uh, I'm happy to give them a dollar a month because I want them to be able to keep making stuff. And um, so we the post is really interesting because, honestly, I haven't really thought about it in terms of filmmakers – But there's sort of a really nice, interesting deep dive into some strategies filmmakers use to do it. And then there was a really interesting discussion about the – is economic inequality the right term? I don't really know how to say it. Basically, very few people are making a living wage out of Patreon. Patreon is still at this point a sort of side hustle hobby. But for the right side hustle hobby, it's actually the numbers they were talking about were like, oh, well, most people are more likely to make like 500 or 1,000 a month. And I'm like, well, 500, 1,000 a month to do like a podcast once a week wouldn't be the end of the world. Like, um, so it, I thought it was really interesting. The cool thing about Patreon is that you can, like you said, you can charge people for the – you get to set your membership tiers. So you can decide – how much you want to charge for it, and they people may pay for that or may not. I 
I know that there are people, I mean, obviously we all do. There are already people and services out there who are making a living doing this, like creating content on Patreon. So there's definitely an opportunity and the TechCrunch, one of the TechCrunch articles cited in our post says that um, in a year, Patreon has doubled active paying patrons um, and the number of active creators. So it's on track to pay out $150 million. Um, it's definitely growing significantly year to year. And I think that makes sense, right? There's a lot of people who are trying to create content that cuts through the noise. So like, look, if the, tr- the models that exist right now, this is also going to tie into one of our other stories today, but there's a lot of ways you can distribute content, right? You can go through some of these aggregators or some of these distributors or some of these direct-to-VOD platforms if you're uh, making a smaller project, say. But the odds that you're going to get eyeballs on them are maybe not so high because there's a lot of content coming through those um, streams. And additionally, you don't know if you're going to get the right eyeballs because like you might make, it, it might not get advertised or placed in the right place or who knows what. The thing about Patreon that's cool is it's, it's really being funded by the people who want to see it, right? So it's, a, it's kind of like a pay per create as opposed to a pay per view. Does that make sense? I feel like that's a really exciting thing because there are so many audiences that are untapped and it takes out some of this guesswork of that the gatekeepers in entertainment have long had to do of like, no, no, that won't sell. Audiences won't like that. And often the people saying that are right and often the people saying that are wrong. But if you actually know what they want before you make it because they signed up for it, doesn't that feel like the solution we're all looking for? Well, when it goes back to that classic John Waters advice about filmmaking, which is that like one of the things you want to do as a filmmaker is if possible, become famous yourself and have your audience of people that are interested in your work so that you're not at the mercy of you want to be a filmmaker so that people are saying, oh, I'm, I want to go see that new John Waters movie as opposed to saying, oh, I want to go see the new um, Baby Goose Ryan Gosling movie. And you want to create that. You want to find a way to connect with your audience of people who like the things you're making. And Patreon is a way of like organizing those people and then potentially even skipping outside financiers and saying, you guys are my audience. You're interested in the stuff I make. Why don't you just pay me directly and I'll make the stuff you like? What's particularly interesting to me is that there's this pressure in Patreon to have like members only perks. Like uh, last podcast, I'll just use them as an example because it's the only Patreon I currently support. Um, is all you know, they're always like, and check out the Patreon for all this members only stuff. And I went once and it was like an interview that wasn't on the normal podcast or whatever. None of it was that interesting to me. I just liked being part of the Patreon, not for the perks, but for the mainline content, the stuff they were giving away for free, the stuff they were making already. I just wanted to support that. And I think there's probably a lesson in there somewhere too for filmmakers, which is like, yes, you should probably have some sort of special perk for people who join, but like people should also, you should be. You should, if you are regularly creating something people are interested in, don't be afraid to say, hey, support this thing by joining the Patreon. It's not about the perks. It's about supporting the thing that you're making regularly. Yeah. I mean, my own example uh, is just I remember a long time ago I made a little short and it was like kind of a fun, weird idea. And it was a proof of concept because the model at the time, I've talked about this before, 
was you create a proof of concept, you take it to a, you know agents, or you take it to production companies and producers, and you try to attach people and blah, blah, blah. And so we made this little thing. It was on YouTube. A lot of people really loved it. They were like fans of it who wanted to see more. And then we went through all the proper channels and kind of made it a certain to a certain level and then hit enough dead ends. And we're like, okay, it's dead. But there were always people out there who would have liked to see more. And it's it was such a niche thing. I honestly think like if it was today, we would have just said, well, we want to make more. It's fun to make it. And there's people who want to see it. And just because there was an executive who didn't think it was worth $200 million or whatever, which maybe is true, doesn't mean that there isn't a way to keep doing this that's financially feasible for us and you know, I, so I just, I feel like it's such a great opportunity, even if you're not looking to like break in, you're looking to actually just keep creating stuff and getting better at creating stuff. And there's a story you want to keep telling. Like, I, I just feel like that to me, that's the, it's a win-win. I really like the lens that this changes for folks in terms of looking for answers, right? So looking for things to share. You've discovered something that you've decided is unique to the industry or unique to your workflow. And now you have some place, now you have something you can do with it. And I think it's like a really interesting position to be in when you've discovered or when you've had a new workflow. Or I think about the editor's roundtable that we had where people were talking about their new way of sharing remote content with folks. If they were, if they wanted to make a series on how do you remote share your films with others, that's something they could do for Patreon. So there, there are now outlets for you to share your problem-solving skills uh, with others. I think the challenge, and we, I think I've seen this a couple of times, is uh, with Patreon, but with other folks, is the, is the price point, right? But I love the lens of that, of saying, hey, what do we want to share in terms of with the world, in terms of bettering something that we're doing or bettering something that I see happening or what series am I making on something that I'm seeing in the world? Like, I love that lens that Patreon brings to it, that idea that you are working on something that's not just an one product, but several ideas, several, like a series. You have to like think of a way to make what you're working on a longer process. I think that's very cool that it did for um, what it's done for, for filmmakers and for creators. Um, I have never set up a Patreon before, but I, I think that my challenge would be the pricing, like to think about what I would want to do with that. So there's a lot on the post also, our the No Film School post about Patreon, about how much Patreon takes. So there's different plans and each plan comes with different uh, perks, but also a higher percent off of what you're earning. And that's part of how it works. And we kind of break it all down in this post, but I recommend like to people curious to take a look and just see how it works out and why it might make sense for you. Um, it's not, I think the point is it's not a get rich quick strategy, nor is it a like break into the big time of the industry strategy. What it is, is a way to create stuff and keep creating stuff and have it paid for. And that's pretty exciting. I mean, for almost anybody, I think, who's creative. So I think thinking of it that way, maybe just reframe that it's not like it's uh, it's not going to do some of those other things that you might be looking to do when you create content. 
I would also venture a guess, and this isn't in the article, I don't think, but I might be wrong. I would venture a guess that over 90% of the contributors are contributing a dollar a month. Like, you know, once you, but like, that's okay. If you get 80,000 people who love your podcast or you have a million monthly listeners and you get 8% of them to sign up, that's 80 grand a month. Like that's still huge. I mean, I think there's only one or two podcasts that are probably in that space, but going back to your suggestion a second ago of like, you know, tech ideas, like when I was starting a color grading business, if there was a Patreon I could have joined that was like, I get to ask questions of other colorists and like there's regular tutorials and there's stuff. When I first started my company in 2007, I totally would have done that. And I think for like tech and workflow and things like that, because, you know, there's all this knowledge that people have stored up that they never take the time to write down because there's no like incentive and like it or not, like if you're someone who knows a whole lot about a lot of editing workflows or if you're like the independent DIY Mandotanium expert, like why are you going to take the time to sit down and give that away for free? But if you set up a Patreon and you're like, I'm the guy who can teach you guys to build your own home uh, Mandotaniums, here's my Patreon. You get access to all of the stuff I do that shows off how you do it. I think there would be a community of people that want that information. And I think that's really interesting at the $1 a month for most supporters kind of rate, which is, I think, where they are largely. Up next, we have tech news. So the big tech news this... Tech news! The big tech news this week is... So Sigma just came out with the Sigma FP. We have a big review of it coming. The review will be out this week or next week. I really had a lot of great experiences with the camera. Everything that frustrated me about the camera is firmware fixable. So I'm so really hoping that they change some things in the firmware because it would make me so happy. Really loved the camera. Um, But that's not news because it's a review from a camera that came out in December. What is news is they just came out with their lens adapter, their L to PL mount lens adapter. So L mount for those of you guys who don't know, is the open, which means multiple brands support it. So Panasonic and uh, Sigma and Leica all support the L mount, and it's designed for very shallow flange focal distance, and it's designed for medium, like for full frame sensors, not medium format, full frame sensors. It's designed for a very shallow lens mount depth, and it's designed for full frame sensors. And because of that, uh, people are very excited about it because when you have that shallow depth, you can adapt it to all sorts of other things. So you can get an L to EF adapter. You can get an L to PL adapter. PL is the positive lock mount. It's the standard motion picture mount. All of your favorite lenses, you know, until recently, like the Airy Signature Primes are only available LPL, but Airy Master Primes or the Zine CFs we just reviewed or um, Irex or Rokinon or all of those motion picture lenses are all available PL mount. Uh, your your cooks, all of that. And people have been really excited for the officially Sigma branded L to PL adapter to come out. Um, now, what's interesting to me about this adapter is this camera is a little under $2,000. It's like $1,899. There are available some $300 adapters from Photodiox and there's a $400 adapter from Wooden Camera. And then they just came out with an $800 adapter, which is almost half the price of the whole camera for just a lens adapter. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a terrible idea. And here's why. I think what's going to happen is most people will probably drift for the Photodiox or the wooden camera. The wooden camera one is quite nice. I've actually used it with a Sigma FP and was very impressed with it. But the Sigma 
is really designed to an incredibly high tolerance level. And here's the reason why. Mostly in film, in lower end digital filmmaking, the marks on the lens are not a big deal. You're looking at the monitor for focus. You're looking at a big external monitor for focus. So if like the lens markings are a little bit off or something and, and things don't line up perfectly, you're, you're going to be able to work around it. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It, it's not going to work out. Motion picture workflows you want to have incredibly like precise focus markings. You want to have incredibly precise back focus. You want to have everything dialed in properly. And I think that they just built this to an incredibly high tolerance. And this is really targeted at working professionals. This is not targeted at you've bought a Sigma FP and you're going to get a whole bunch of a lens adapters with it to be ready for every situation because you're not going to buy four or five different adapters. This is a you're a working filmmaker. You're going out on sets all the time. You're working with PL mount lenses probably that you rent all the time. And you want an adapter that you can be sure all of your focus marks are going to be perfect and focus is going to be perfect. And it's very, very, very finely built. It's actually – it's it's dual shimmable. You can shim the front or the back. Um, so you've got a whole lot of control over setting very, very precise – Actually, let's cut out the dual shimmable part because I actually don't remember if that's true. I might have read that in an early leak and I don't know if that was true in the end. It's fully shimmable so that you can set very precise tolerances so that the lens lines up exactly where it's supposed to be. It's all anodized aluminum. It has glow-in-the-dark focus markings. It's, it's, it's a very fancy lens adapter. Is this the lens adapter I would get if I wasn't working with PL mount glass all the time and I just wanted it occasionally? Like I've got a whole bunch of other lens adapters on my desk for things that show up occasionally in my life. Like every once in a while I need this. So I have a photo diax adapter for like X to EF because once a year I end up doing that. I'm probably not going to spend $800 on an adapter I'm going to use once a year. Is this the lens adapter I would get if I'm working all the time with the Sigma FP? I'm using it as my director's finder on set. I'm shooting a lot of LPL jobs and I might set it up as the C camera. I think I probably would. So that is the big tech news this week. I have a question for you about the Sigma camera and this mount, which is you've used it now um, for a little bit of time. Are, is there a world in which you would use it? Like what projects would you most like to use it on with a PL mount? lens. What is an ideal project for you if you had this mount going forward with the camera? So the, the fun thing about this camera is that it has what's called director's finder mode built into it. So you can mount a um, you can mount a PL mount lens to it and then you can bring up highly accurate frame lines for red, Alexa or Sony motion picture cameras. So let's say I'm out on an Alexa LF shoot and the Alexa LF is super heavy, right? But I want a director's finder where I can plot out my shots. I'm watching a blocking. I like to hold the lens. I can put that lens on instead of going on my uh, Alexa LF, which is like an 18-pound camera and it's kind of a brick. I can put it on my Sigma FP and I can get my exact frame lines. Now, there's also the wonderful app on our phone, Artemis, that we all use, which is great where you can take photos with your phone. But no matter how hard Artemis tries, and they try very, very hard, with the tiny sensor on a phone, you're never going to get the precise same field of view that you get out of um, – what happens when you actually put it on the real motion picture camera. And that can actually have some big implications on wide lenses. For instance, if I'm out there with a director's finder and I'm framing up something on a set and, you know, I can actually see what's in set needs to be dressed and what's out of frame and doesn't need to be dressed. And there've been times where I like, I've taken a photo with Artemis and the actor's framing looked the same, but the background was so different. It led to different things for art department that art department had to do different things because Artemis looked one way. And then once I put the real lens on the camera, 
I saw more of my background we needed to dress more. So this the something like the Sigma FP is amazing for that. However, that leads me to the, my frustration, which is right now there's not a really great way to record the output of the director's finder mode. So if I'm out there in director's finder mode, what I want to do is be able to snap a still. I want those frame lines to appear on the still. I want to be able to like Bluetooth that to the whole crew or to a laptop where I can make notes. I want it to save all the lens metadata. So if I have lens metadata, it's passing through. And right now, even the $800 adapter doesn't appear to pass through lens metadata. And that's a real bummer because, you know, the modern cinema lenses have slash I in them. I mean, look, I'm basically, this is the dream I've wanted. I was trying to build this like 15 years ago. I was like looking for parts on eBay to try and build something that did this. This is the dream we've all had for so long and it's here. And I'm nitpicking about tiny little flaws in the dream. But I'm still like, oh, why can't I just record that image and share it with people? Like, we'll get there. We're so close. But that's what this is really for. That is for the, I'm out on a job. I want really accurate frame lines in my director's finder. And the images out of the camera are beautiful. So you could, I could easily see myself being on an LF job. And then since I've got the FP with me, putting it up as a B or a C camera, I could totally see doing that. I doubt you're going to use PL mount if you're using this as an A camera. If this is your A camera, which I think you're going to see a lot of people using it as an A camera. It's a very nice camera. I think you'll probably end up using like native L mount lenses just because it'll be lighter and easier and more ergonomic. And there's a whole lot of great native L mount glass coming and a lot of it is already out. But I think that you're going to see more... The PL adapter, I think, is more as a tool on bigger jobs. But there's a lot of people doing those bigger jobs. I mean, there's like 780 TV shows shooting right now. Um, so there's a lot of work for people who are shooting on those nicer lenses who want something that give them sort of a precise framing. All right. And then that leads us to our final topic this week. And it is an interesting one. It's an Ask No Film School from Devin Dixon that leads back to an article on our site. And it is, since Tug has gone out of business, what alternatives are people using for cinematic distribution? And uh, if you missed the article, Oakley Anderson Moore. So Tug was a platform where you could arrange for the theatrical distribution on an indie movie. So if you have fans and you could pre-sell a certain number of tickets on a Tuesday night instead of the movie theater having five people watching a three-week-old Avengers movie, you could have 75 or more people watching your movie. Full disclosure, in 2013, my uh, feature film Angel's Perch, which is available on Amazon Prime and many other places, um, we self-released through Tug. It was hugely successful. It was a regional movie. Movie showed all over the South and Appalachia, which is sort of the region where it's set in and a region it really resonated with. But we also had screenings in New England and West Coast. And it was a really great platform. And uh, it was work intensive. And as Oakley pointed out, and we had the same experience, my wonderful producer, Kimberly Diltz, handled it on Angel's Perch. It required a tremendous amount of effort on the filmmaker's part. And what I loved about this particular question is it brought me back to the Oakley Anderson Moore article. And the Oakley Anderson Moore article had a huge conversation in, in the comments in which no one was a toxic troll. Um, there was a whole lot of really interesting conversations and it seems like there's a couple places where people are looking. You can still go rent a movie theater. Um, it's expensive. You have to be willing to put down deposits and do guarantees and, you know, you have to individually negotiate every one. 
as one of the beauties of Tug is they'd pre-negotiated a lot of the deals and the breakdowns to make it easier for you. Um, but there were people in the comment section talking about having really great experiences doing that in a roadshow type experience pre-booking movie theaters. And then there's another company and another company is called Binge Wave. Full disclosure, never heard of them before that comment section. Um, but they seem to be doing interesting things and um, – you know, someone from Binge Wave was in the comments sort of discussing what they do, and it's it's a similar sort of thing. But what's interesting about Binge Wave, which I really like, is they – I don't know if employee is the right word, but you can freelance as a screening coordinator who gets good at all the coordination work of putting a screening together and then I think takes a cut from each screening. Because one of the problems with Tug is that, you know, nobody's making two or three movies a year, or if you are, you're in a different universe. So once you've learned the skills to get good at Tug, you're now – done releasing your movie and you won't need those skills again for three or four years. So they have these coordinators that are deliberately set up to be like, you're a person who gets good at setting these up, who learns these skills and you're taking a piece of it while you set up these screenings. Right now, it seems to be mostly non-traditional venues. I see mostly like, we can set up a screening in your art event or in your museum room or whatever. It doesn't seem like they've contracted with a lot of traditional theaters yet, but I'd be surprised if they weren't moving in that direction. And I think that's one place to consider. I haven't really explored what these personally with any projects, what any of these platforms are like to work with. And I do think that it's really cool that in the no film school boards, and comment sections and community, there's a conversation about this where somebody who actually represents one of these places is weighing in and sort of letting people know, hey, this is what this alternative looks like. When you said nobody is making three movies a year, I sort of had this sudden thought to, I was thinking about Roger Corman, who kind of like, I feel like there's, there isn't, well, maybe there are, and I just don't know about them, but I feel like there's got to be some Roger Cormans out there who are finding ways to work this new model. Corman was, you know, a, he was, he made a bunch of movies that all made money. He was very good at making like people call them exploitation or B movies or whatever, but he was good at churning out content within for specific audiences that wanted to go see it, that were paying money for it. And he kept doing that for so long. And he did it before he did it when it was a theatrical model, <laughs> which is crazy. But like, so the model has changed a lot, obviously, but there are so many more ways you can make a little bit of money off a movie now. When we talk about all these opportunities and platforms, I think about, are there filmmakers out there who are thinking not just in terms of, I want to be Wes Anderson, for example, but are thinking in terms of, I want to be... Roger Corman. Like, I want to keep making movies. Like, I want to get an opportunity to make movies or or do episodic content. And I don't just want to premiere at Sundance or win the whatever, the grand jury prize. I want to make another one quickly. And I want to get really good at making a lot of them. And I just want a career making them. I think that that's an interesting angle that we don't discuss. But I just think, are there creators who are really like examining and trying to find like, I don't want to call it a loophole, but a way to sustain a career through these models. 
That has been this week on the No Film School podcast. As always, you can check me out on the Instagram and on the uh, Twitter at Charles Hain. I also have a web series called Salty Pirate. It is coming out in April on Ficto and Vimeo VOD. You can check it out the trailer now at saltypirate.tv and sign up there on the mailing list to be notified when the show comes out. I hope you all watch it because uh, I'm really proud of it. This is Michelle De La Tour. It was a pleasure to be with both of you today. My Instagram and Twitter feed is at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thanks very much for listening. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can follow No Film School on Twitter at No Film School. You can find our Facebook page. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Leave comments. Let us know how we're doing. Ask us questions. And uh, head over to the website. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. We have a lot of great content up right now, including a really cool post up called Bookmark This Site for the Best Curated Filmmaking Apps. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.